Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, we are speaking from the 43rd Annual Congress of the Society of Critical Care Medicine in San Francisco, California. I have the pleasure of speaking with Michael Mathe, MD, who is Professor of Medicine and Anesthesia at the University of California at San Francisco and a Senior Associate at the Cardiovascular Research Institute. Dr. Mathe spoke at Congress regarding stem cell therapies in critical illness, which we will further discuss now. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Mathe. My pleasure. A lot of your work and uh, we've discussed here really is centered around ARDS, but the importance of identifying ARDS early. Can you help us understand why that's important? Yes. Well, I think that identifying ARDS as early as possible is very important because we have a life-saving therapy to apply, which the sooner it's applied, probably it's most likely to have benefit, the life-saving therapy being lung protective ventilation. And several studies, including our original ARDS Network trial, showed that, but it's also been recognized that for a variety of reasons, patients with ARDS are not always identified in a timely manner. Or, or at all in some cases, I imagine. <laughs> yes, yes. What type of tools would you suggest for recognizing ARDS as early as possible? Well, that's a really good question because probably multiple approaches could or should be taken, one of which is just what we're doing now, a general education approach to remind young physicians established physicians, senior physicians, that this is a challenge. And the sooner that the problem is identified, the better for the patient. So I think one of the key points is physicians recognizing that if a patient has bilateral pulmonary infiltrates on the chest radiograph, it should cross their mind immediately that they might have ARDS even if the chest x-ray infiltrates are heterogeneous or modest on both sides. And while it's correct, of course, to try to exclude cardiogenic pulmonary edema or hydrostatic pulmonary edema, it should be in their mind that this could be ARDS, even mild, and that if the patient is being mechanically ventilated, then they would be a potential candidate for lung protective ventilation. The other part of it is they should be naturally measuring the arterial blood gas and seeing if their arterial oxygen tension divided by the fraction of inspired oxygen is less than 300. Those are really the two key clinical criteria, PaO2, FiO2 ratio less than 300, and bilateral infiltrates on the x-ray. And if the patient should turn out to have a component of or even exclusively cardiogenic pulmonary edema, there probably is no harm to having given them lung protective ventilation in any case. So I think, I think one tool or one approach is just to try to upgrade everybody's awareness of this issue. We just completed, for example, an invited review for the journal Hospitalist Medicine. They ask us to write about ARDS and treatment. So there are lots of non-intensivists who see obviously patients with ARDS before anyone else. So everybody involved, I think, should just as possible have their awareness increased. 
Now there are other there are other approaches as some intensive care units take. Like I know at Vanderbilt University in the medical ICU, they have a default orders for mechanical ventilation on any patient so that they all receive lung protective ventilation, whatever their diagnosis is, if they're intubated for anything. From my view, that's a little non-selective, but not necessarily a bad plan. So if the patient really doesn't have ARDS, then the clinician can change to a different modality if it's primarily asthma or COPD. But that is one approach to just say, okay, so we don't fail to give this ventilation strategy. We'll make it a default approach for all patients in the ICU. And I suppose the other approach is to... If I may if yes, just ask, please. are they... So for all patients, they're using six cc's per kilo? Or? Well, at least, at least initially. So mm-hmm. all patients get their tidal volume initially ordered according to their height and gender. So they calculate predicted body weight based on height and gender and give everybody six ml per kilogram in the medical ICU at Vanderbilt. So that's one approach. And then say, okay, then the clinician has to decide, well, no, wait, this patient really doesn't have ARDS. It's a patient with COPD and a clear chest x-ray or a patient with liver failure and decreased mental status who's been ventilated just because they can't protect their airway. And then they could, if they want to increase the tidal volume to 8 or 9 mLs per kilogram. I don't think this approach is, you know, has traction for all ICUs, but it's something to think about. Another approach is to have a system where if the uh, PaO2, FiO2 is less than 300, regardless of the chest x-ray, to have some kind of alert whereby the clinician, the intensivist, and the respiratory therapist are being prompted to make the decision whether this patient should or should not be on lung protective ventilation for ARDS. So that that is another uh, approach. One of my colleagues at UCSF here in town, Dr. Calfee, Carolyn Calfee, she just completed a uh, study with a medicine resident and uh, even at our own institution found a substantial number of patients in whom the diagnosis of ARDS was not identified in the physician notes. They didn't say ARDS when it was ARDS. It was bilateral pneumonia, patient was pretty hypoxemic. So they didn't say ARDS, and if they didn't use the term ARDS, then it seemed like it did not trigger, in many cases, ARDSnet lung protective ventilation. So I suppose another approach is to try to educate all of us to use the term ARDS. So in the past, before the proof that lung protective ventilation was really uh, life-saving, if there were a delay in making the diagnosis, one could argue it wasn't so critical. But now it is more urgent because the therapy does make a real difference. What are your thoughts currently about low tidal volume strategy for prevention of ARDS? Right. So that's a good area for discussion around which I think we will see a lot more in the way of clinical studies over the next few years. There is that one study many people are familiar with recently published in the New England Journal where the investigators uh, 
randomized patients undergoing upper abdominal surgery to two groups. One group received low tidal volume with at least five of PEEP. The other group got a higher tidal volume and zero PEEP. And the group that got the higher tidal volume and no PEEP had a higher incidence of postoperative pulmonary complications. And statistically, there was a difference. It wasn't just based on developing ARDS. The only, the only caveat to that trial is using PEEP of zero. Is that really standard of care in the anesthesia world in the OR? And I think the answer is maybe not. I think uh, most, albeit not all, anesthesiologists use some level of PEEP, three to five, in the OR, particularly in an upper abdominal case. I mean, some do not, but I think it is. Uh, it does certainly suggest that Perhaps in the operating room, in the higher-risk case, it's worthwhile doing low tidal volume and PEEP. I'm not sure scientifically the article is perfect, but it's, it's good. So I would say that's a group of patients in whom we can have some confidence that the low tidal volume may be preventative. We just have to see in other groups. There's some meta-analyses and other studies that suggest it might be, but I think this is a good area for study. And speaking about early recognition of ARDS, I was beginning to wonder whether even once the PF ratio is low enough and the chest X-ray findings are there, is that too late? Are are there mechanisms or thoughts about identifying, I guess, pre-ARDS, if you will, or at the very uh, earliest part of the inflammatory process? Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, we and other groups are very interested in this early phase. If we take ARDS is the correct nomenclature, which I think it's good it is, as per the Berlin definition. And it really applies, you know, it's been the real definition for decades. A patient is intubated and ventilated. But what about the patient who's not yet intubated, as you're suggesting, who has, you know, pneumonia on both sides, requires a substantial amount of oxygen. That patient certainly has some degree of lung injury. And uh, that's a really important patient group. Uh, We published a study in CHEST in 2009. Uh, Dr. Levitt was the first author from Stanford, and it showed that when we studied 100 patients like that, 33 of them progressed to get intubated and ventilated. And Dr. Augie Gazik from Mayo Clinic had some similar work on studying patients who were in an early phase of lung injury that they could be identified. So... That group needs more study. The NHLBI ARDS Network was just competitively renewed, and the acronym will not be ARDS Network 3, but PEDAL, which is Prevention and Early Treatment of Acute Lung Injury. And the requirement is that half the patients to be enrolled in those clinical trials, we will need to enroll from the emergency department. Therefore, at the early point, and maybe half in the more traditional approach, testing new therapies in those who are already intubated and ventilated. So I'm not sure uh, that patient group is a very good group to work with. Should we be trying, you know, systematically non-invasive ventilation? Should we be trying some inhaled therapeutics or even some traditional therapeutics that didn't work and establish ARDS and might work earlier? It's going to be a challenge like any emergency department-based study because the interval, the time interval to enroll the patient will be so much shorter. But... Yeah, I think it's a, an important new, new trend because it's possible, as your question indicated, 
that if you wait for the bilateral infiltrates and the ARDS criteria, so much of the injury has already occurred. Sure. So earlier recognition makes sense. I couldn't agree more. And it naturally could be why some of the therapies didn't work that we tried, that they were too late. Are there planned interventions for the pedal? Nothing yet. That's a good question. Nothing yet has been decided. Each group that submitted a competitive application was asked to put two potential trials, one for the patients in the emergency department and one for those in the ICU. Once the sites are officially selected, I think we will probably share everybody's ideas there and we'll all get a chance to look at each other's proposals and then we'll begin thinking about which ones should be considered as a priority. And and one of the questions will be, for example, particularly since this is a new initiative, should we, for instance, try to do some phase two work rather than going straight to phase three trials? Traditionally arts networks done just we just done phase three trials. But maybe this would be an opportunity for us to get our feet wet and see how we do with a kind of smaller trials. People are interested in different approaches. I'm very interested, for example, in keratinocyte growth factor, which is very promising, I think. We have a phase two trial going on with Dr. McCauley in the UK for KGF, just a 60-patient phase 2 trial. But that, that treatment has multiple possible mechanisms, reducing injury, enhancing epithelial repair, antimicrobial properties, and um, experimentally, it works best when given earlier. So that, that could be something could be ideal for an emergency department setting. Uh, some people, I think, are definitely going to be interested in some kind of non-invasive ventilation approach. Others will be interested in probably considering a trial with prone ventilation to see if we can replicate the French experience. But I'm not, I'm not sure. We, we ourselves also, although it's an early phase, are very interested in mesenchymal stromal cells. We're just finishing phase one trial now at UCSF, Stanford, and MGH. But that's early, so... Can you tell me more about the Right, so the mesenchymal stem cells was an unexpected direction for our group. We sort of serendipitously became interested because somebody, a former postdoc of mine who's an independent scientist now, said to me, oh, Dr. Mathay, you should consider studying mesenchymal stem cells from the bone marrow because they might have very excellent anti-inflammatory properties and so he suggested this to me in 2005 and I quickly learned that they were very interesting. They weren't the kind of cells that would engraft in the lung and replace injured tissue but had these paracrine properties of various molecules they released that potentially could reduce inflammation and maybe enhance repair. So the short version of the story is that we did mouse studies and then we did perfused human lung studies from lungs from brain-dead patients that weren't transplanted and sheep studies, and they all demonstrated that when we gave allogeneic, bone marrow-derived human mesenchymal stromal cells, there was a dramatic effect on reducing injury and enhancing repair with appropriate controls with fibroblasts and other controls. And the mechanisms appear to be multiple, including increased anti-inflammatory cytokines that the cells release and seem to induce the release endogenously, less 
in the way of pro-inflammatory cytokines. We did unexpectedly discover they have antimicrobial properties through some antimicrobial peptides they release, plus upregulating monocyte phagocytosis. And then they release these other factors like keratinocyte growth factor and angiopotin 1, which increase epithelial and endothelial repair and barrier properties. They seem to also decrease apoptosis. So as the studies kept continuing, the preclinical work, we became really uh, motivated to see if we could actually test them in patients. And we were very fortunate because we found an NIH-supported group at the University of Minnesota that made clinical-grade MSCs. They just get them from normal donors, 18 to 30 years old. This is a sort of standard approach. There's a company called Lonza that gets bone marrow from donors who are screened for, you know, good health. And then uh, these are supplied to private or NIH groups for cell-based therapy, whether it's hematopoietic cells or, in this case, mesenchymal bone marrow cells. So we went through the process of applying for an IND with the FDA. The NHLBI has given us a, a grant to support the Phase one and Phase two work. And um, we're not the only investigators who have published now in preclinical models that, that they work in lung injury models, infection models, sepsis models. So there's a lot of interest. Maybe, maybe the cell-based therapy has appeal also because it's not like a single drug, but multiple pathways, you know, sort of like combination chemotherapy for certain cancers like lymphoma or breast cancer where best effect is with more than one agent, three or four. But also cell-based therapy is a little more cumbersome because you have to have the cryopreserved cells, your bone marrow transplant lab needs to thaw them and... But if our trial is focused on moderate to severe ARDS, the sicker patients, and we've had no safety issues in the phase one trial, we've now enrolled eight patients, we need one more, and then we would go on to the phase two. So it's still early. We're very focused on safety and don't want to uh, overstate the promise, but but it's interesting. Other um, prospects you think that we'll be seeing over the next few years? Well, that's a good question. I do think keratinocyte growth factor is very interesting. It does have multiple uh, mechanisms of action, as I mentioned. It turns out KGF was originally discovered as a growth factor that seemed to only work on epithelium. But it turns out that uh, the receptor is on endothelium, and our group discovered it's on monocytes and reported that recently. So KGF has uh, beneficial effects on epithelium, endothelium, and monocytes. It's approved for use in patients with mucositis from chemotherapy or radiation for head and neck cancer. And I think that's a promising single agent. There's actually uh, uh, some very interesting preclinical and early clinical work on vitamin C for sepsis and maybe lung injury. One of my former fellows, a very fine faculty member at Vanderbilt, Dr. Lorraine Ware, she has data on, of all things, acetaminophen is potentially beneficial through antioxidant pathways. So there are simple generic treatments that if they were effective would be obviously great. And then, of course, since the French trial showed prone positioning was beneficial and neuromuscular blockade was beneficial, probably both working on 
amplifying, improving the lung protective ventilation benefit, that area will continue to be studied. Pharmacologically, I think it's known that our trial of statins for ARDS and ARDS network was not, did not show a beneficial effect. I think it'll be presented formally in the spring, but I think it's widely known. There's always this interest in statins for sepsis or ARDS, but the anti-inflammatory effects, it may be hard to achieve them in a short enough period, but we have a negative trial on that. And uh, I think there was a negative trial on it for community-acquired pneumonia in JAMA recently. There is a study that's being published in Lancet Respiratory that has some promising data on beta interferon, uh, kind of a surprise, but uh, the study design was not ideal. They combined phase one and phase two and didn't have concurrent controls, so it's uh, hard to interpret it, but it, it appeared to have benefit in ARDS. So, so that's one uh, molecule, beta interferon, to watch and see what develops there. Other new approaches, we've had so many negative trials in ARDS and uh, sepsis. Thoughts about taking a different approach to uh, clinical research? Well, that's a good question. Jean-Louis Venson gets a little discouraged about all the negative trials in sepsis. I have two thoughts about that. One is that it, from the perspective of a bench scientist, which I have been as well as a clinical scientist, you expect to have your basic hypothesis, to, to disprove your basic hypothesis about 80 to 90% of the time. It's not expected that clinical trials would be positive more than 5 to 15% of the time. Secondly, ARDS is an area of great achievement because the mortality in ARDS, if you look at the just the ARDS network group, we summarized this in a JCI review last year, but it's really gone down from 40% to about 21%. Now, that, that doesn't happen very often. So I think lung protective ventilation has really made a difference. Fluid conservative therapy is useful to get patients off the ventilator sooner, but there was a mortality benefit of 3%. It was just a p-value that was not significant, 0.30. But if there had been another two or 300 patients, fluid conservative would have shown a mortality benefit also. So I think you can say there's at least a morbidity benefit of fluid conservative. So that, that's good. And then finally, the activated protein C prowess shock trial that was negative, the second one, a key point to realize, in my opinion, is that the original trial was done in septic patients who were not on lung protective ventilation. I wrote the editorial about it in the New England Journal in 2001, and I remember thinking about this at the time because the trial was started before ARDS Network finished our lung protective ventilation. And 74% of the patients with sepsis had it from the lung. Probably the vast majority had ARDS. So then the second trial is done in the modern era of lung protective ventilation, which was a requirement. So it could be that activated protein C could not really add something to lung protective ventilation. I know many were discouraged that it didn't work, but I think it might not have worked in the second trial in large part because the patients now had lung protective ventilation, which we know has anti-inflammatory effects and many other multiple mechanisms of benefit. But, you know, the question is a good one. Should we, should we nevertheless think about newer designs, how to approach 
therapies. And I would I would say one suggestion would be more phase two work, like Dr. McCauley has been doing in the UK, not resisting the temptation, if you will, to go to a phase three trial prematurely. We may have done that when we decided to do our uh, couple of our studies in ARDS network. One we did was trying to decide whether early versus later intral treatment mattered. Well, there was actually a phase two trial ongoing at the time, which turned out to be negative. So it might be better to do some smaller phase two work, even though, of course, you never still know until you do the phase three trial, <laughs> but to get some more, more, more promising signals. It's, it's always a little balanced because you worry in a phase two trial that you might be just underpowering yourself to see the effect. I think the other approach, which is really important, is more complete biologic molecular phenotyping. So if you look at our sister fields like cancer therapy, even cardiac disease, the patients are better characterized clinically, and by certain biologic markers than we're able to do in sepsis and ARDS. So everybody knows we have so much heterogeneity in our trials that it maybe is difficult to focus the therapies where we should. For example, inhaled NO did not work in the ARDS trials, but maybe, maybe it would work if we had a better understanding of the biology and we could focus it on a certain patient group. So in my group at UCSF and colleagues like Dr. Carolyn Calfee and Dr. Lorraine Ware at Vanderbilt and others, we're working very hard on biologic markers, like it's being done for asthma now, so that maybe in real time we could get some biomarkers measured very early to see if the patient fits into the group with, for example, more epithelial injury with elevated rage, more inflammation such as elevated IL-8, more endothelial injury from elevated angiopoietin-2. So that might, that's probably a reasonable approach so that we reduce heterogeneity in clinical trials, whether it's sepsis or ARDS. The challenge there is the time. You've got to have something that you can measure and point a care like a lactate that's going to be available quickly. But I think that might help us. You know, in the original trial of TNF-alpha inhibition in sepsis back in the 80s and early 90s, they never had a way to measure TNF-alpha in those septic patients. Or in the IL-1-RA trial, they didn't have a way to measure interleukin-1-beta. So it's conceivable some of those therapies might have worked if they could have focused it on the patients with high IL-1-beta or high TNF-alpha. I think the deeper, bigger job for the field is to improve uh, the phenotyping of the patients. You know, my wife works in children's cancer. When they're dealing with a neuroblastoma or acute leukemia, they immediately categorize all of them into specific subsets. And, you know, mortality in children's cancer has fallen to 20%. And part of the reason, whether it's leukemia or other tumors, is because they're very good at biologic characterization as well as the clinical. Now, they have a little more time to do it than we do in the critically ill patient, but I think that should be an area for our field. Great. So certainly uh, a lot of suggestions out there for anyone who's listening and doing some research. (laughs) Just ideas. Great. Thank you uh, so much. I don't know if there was anything else that you wanted to get across. Well, I I appreciate the opportunity to 
to respond to these questions. I think there's a lot of excitement in critical care. And it's interesting how, you know, that I think that in spite of no therapies specifically that have changed the outcome in sepsis, almost certainly lung protective ventilation has reduced mortality. And many of the other things we do in the ICU now, less sedation, early mobilization, efforts to reduce ventilator-associated pneumonia, thromboembolic events. So in spite of all this, the mortality of septic shock has gone down some. So I think the field is doing a better job with supportive care. It's a little bit like cystic fibrosis. Cystic fibrosis, the morbidity and mortality over the last 20 years has gone down dramatically, yet they don't really have a breakthrough therapy. They have combination therapies, but they found with better nursing and physician care the patients do much better. So much better that the idea of lung transplant and cystic fibrosis has fallen out of favor for most of them compared to 20 years ago. So I think there's more advance in critical care than might be generally appreciated. That's certainly reassuring. <laughs> thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Well, this concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care podcast. Thank you for listening, and please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. You can now also find us on Stitcher and Beyond Pod as well as on iTunes. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Mark your calendar and join more than 6,000 members of the critical care community in the Valley of the Sun for SCCM's 44th Critical Care Congress to be held January 17th to 21st, 2015 in Phoenix, Arizona, USA. Visit www.sccm.org congress to register and for more information. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCP, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is Associate Professor of Surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is Director of the Surgical ICU and Executive Medical Co-Director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit, medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.